You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 382, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. Guy Kierick is a Brazilian anthropologist and programmer currently researching the Ruby language and its community. He lives in England, where he works as a Ruby backend developer at FarmDrop and also as an associate researcher at University College London. Welcome to the Ruby on Rails podcast, Guy. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. This is the first time that I'm participating in a podcast. Yes, really good to be here. Well, we promise to be kind to you and you will be a veteran by the end of the show, I'm sure. Thank you. Guy, what is your developer origin story? I'm afraid that story is not too long, but I'll do my best. So programming is something that I've been interested in for a long time, maybe even from when I played with the logo and the turtle when I was very little. But when it was only about three years ago that I really started learning how to program. And I went to a boot camp here in London, and the focus was on TDD and Agile. The core languages that we sort of looked into were Ruby and JavaScript, played around a little bit with Lua, a little bit with C Sharp as well. And I decided to focus on Ruby. Soon after I finished the bootcamp, I found a job as a Ruby backend developer and at FarmDrop and working there for two years. That's great. And so a new question for the show then for you specifically is what is your anthropology origin story? So that goes back a bit further. And I've been an anthropologist for about 15 years. My main focus for a long time was working with indigenous communities in Brazil, where I'm from, and first in the south of Brazil, and then a bit further north in the Amazon region. I worked with NGOs, for NGOs, with NGOs, other public institutions as well, in indigenous rights advocacy. But for a long time, my focus was on doing research about cultural practices of indigenous communities in Brazil. So for my PhD, I lived in a small Amazonian community for a year and a half in 2013 and 2014. And I was basically following the effects that the construction of a river dam was having. And that was being built about 100 miles from their villages. And I was looking at the effects that was having on their lives. It's the Belamochi Dam. It's the third largest dam in the world. And these guys, they're called Arawete, and they're around 700 people. They live in 23 uh, villages in the Xingu River, which is in the eastern part of the Brazilian Amazon. Basically, my focus was on their music and how music reflected sort of historical changes, how they incorporated, for example, foreign elements into the performances of their songs. But I also kind of focus on specific linguistic aspects of those songs. So, for example, how the symbolism used in one musical genre is different than the way in which rhythm affects the lyrics in another genre. Yeah, I guess the main idea was to try and understand how they, the Arawete, kind of view the world and how we can learn a bit about that worldview through their songs. That's amazing. And so, you know, having that background in anthropology, what led you to want to learn how to code? I think two things led me to learn to code, having that background in anthropology. One is that anthropology is a discipline or a sort of way of looking into the world 
that really focuses, really emphasizes learning to do things and to participate as a sort of technique for learning. So anthropology is not just about observing sort of social aspects of life or of different political, economical aspects, of cultural aspects of different societies. It is that, but by participating while learning. So the whole idea of anthropology is that you go and live somewhere else for a long time and try to understand what people do by living and doing what they're doing. And that ties in very well, I think, with programming and with a lot of, I guess, mentality or sort of way of thinking about things that goes around in, in programming, which is, you know, to understand something, you have to go and do it. Not just about, I guess, reading books and trying to learn about programming languages. It's about going, building something, going in and building a little product, making something, and then that's how you learn. So I guess that is something similar between anthropology and programming in a sense. And I wanted to explore, like I said, that programming was always at the back of my head for three years. And I wanted to explore that both as an anthropologist, but just for myself. So I guess that's kind of what led me to programming. That's an incredibly insightful way to look at it. So tell me about FarmDrop and its technical stack. So FarmDrop is a online supermarket. It has a very specific focus in trying to get products that are not too distant from where you live. It's only available here in London and around the area of London so far. But the idea is that you won't be buying things that come from really far away and then that have a really sort of impact on the planet in terms of, it, of carbon emissions. The focus is sort of on organic and ethical sort of products. The tech stack is basically a Rails monolith with different other Ruby Rails services attached to it. And it has an Android app, an iOS app. And obviously the web app is uh, React. Well, you and I know each other because of your project CodeAnth, which we talked about briefly in the intro. So what is the purpose of the project that you're working on? CodeAnth was born out of this desire to sort of combine anthropology and programming, like I said before, like, and a desire to sort of learn to program and to move my research focus into technology and development. And a few months before I started going to boot camp, I wrote the project proposal, ended up being funded, and as a project, sort of CodeAnth has two main directions. One is to explore the world of programming by looking into the cultural aspects of one specific programming community, the Ruby community. It seems to me that quite often we get very general assertions or sentences or people just talking about generally about programming and programmers, and that's such a huge and big world that I wanted to find a way of trying to slice a smaller, more containable area so I could try and understand it. And that's one very important. And then the way I did that is through language. So through focus on the Ruby language, trying to focus on the Ruby community. But of course, what does that mean? What does it mean to like look at the cultural aspects of a programming community? To me, it sort of means that I'm not just looking at the syntax of the Ruby language or even the development of the language. I'm looking, for example, at why is metaprogramming so important to the community? And what does the idea of sort of metaprogramming represent culturally? Or why was weirdness such an important part of the Ruby community 
And how has that changed in the past few years? What are the different trajectories of Ruby developers? How does migration, gender, class, how does that affect and is affected by their participation in the community? For example, another thing is like how relevant is the fact that Ruby was created and is mainly maintained by a lot of Japanese developers? Like we don't usually think of programming languages as belonging to one nationality, I think. Like we don't think of Python as a Dutch language or Lua as a Brazilian language. But there's a feeling, I think, in the Ruby community, the fact that Ruby was invented in Japan is an important part of its past. It's one of the things that sets Ruby apart from other languages. And it is in those things, those differences between programming communities, that I think we can start to find out what the Ruby culture is. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Honey Badger. Honey Badger is one of the easiest decisions you can make. As an engineering lead on a tech stack that supports a UI, API, mobile application, and Chrome extension, it is awesome to have all of my error monitoring, uptime monitoring, and check-in monitoring in one place. No matter how great your team is, your code is going to have errors. Honey Badger empowers your whole team to own the features they ship. Honey Badger sends you alerts real time with all the context needed to see what's causing the error and where it's hiding so you can quickly fix it and get on with your day. The included uptime and cron monitoring also lets you know when your external services are having issues or your background jobs go missing or silently fail. Head over to honeybadger.io and discover how Honey Badger is used by tens of thousands of pragmatic developers and companies of all sizes who want to focus on shipping great error-free products. Those are such interesting questions to pose. I'm especially interested in, you know, the Japanese influence and the whole weirdness aspect of it. So what stage are you currently in on the project? I am almost halfway. So things are about to start getting even more interesting. I think always in a research project when you're halfway through is when you start to think that you've got some of the things down. But actually, something comes along and just shakes everything, which makes it more interesting. So I've done about 35 interviews. I've worked as part of a Ruby team. And I think now it's time to start listening to those interviews, start thinking about all the things that I've experienced, what people have told me. And I'm at a stage where I'll be reading a lot about programming languages, the history of Ruby and the tech world in general. How did you find participants to take parts in the interview? Uh, so two different ways. I've worked with a team of Ruby developers for a while, and I've interviewed most of them for the project. Like I mentioned before, that's a big part of how anthropology works, to kind of get to grips, to understand how to build things, to make things, to participate. And the idea was to get a sense of what it is like to work as part of a team of developers, given that is the context in which the majority of Rubyists work in. And the second way that I find participants is by interviewing people in the worldwide Ruby community. And the way I do that is by recommendation and going one by one. So instead of bombarding the lists and Twitter with messages inviting participants, I ask people that I interview to recommend someone else that I could interview. I think that's obviously a slow process, but that's how I build my network. So for instance, Last year, I went to the Paris Ruby conference and I met Andy Crow. I reached out to him when the project started. We did a couple of really nice chats, interviews, and he recommended that I interviewed a few people, including you. So 
after we did our interview, you mentioned I should interview Gemma, who kindly accepted to be interviewed as well. So that's how I build my sort of network one by one. Every now and then I do send an sort of unannounced email to someone, but that's rare. And like I said, it's a slow process, but I'd rather do that than just spam the community with emails and messages, especially given that people already, there's a lot of information out there. People get a lot of contact already. And uh, I kind of do want to make it a bit more personal, I guess, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. And I will say it's a very different project. I think it's a much needed project and I'm eager to see the results. But getting a warm email from Andy with you attached explaining the project made me very open to participating. And so that seems to have worked well for you. Yeah, thanks for that. I think that's really good to hear. So walk me through a participant interview. Of course, I've gone through one, but let's have the listeners hear how it goes. So... Of course, given the pandemic, I've done everything online. I haven't done any face-to-face interviews, maybe in the future, who knows? And the interview can last anything between one to three hours. And depending on how the conversation flows and of course, people's availability. And as far as the interview itself goes, the main thing is that it's not like a set sort of survey at all. I don't have like set questions to which like, the person needs to say a yes or no. I have obviously some themes I wish to discuss. Some things I mentioned before, for example, metaprogramming, beautiful code, Japan, weirdness, etc. But I usually try to weave that into a conversation about the person's life story. So that's the most important thing to me, that we have a nice conversation about why and how that person became a Ruby developer. To me, I mean, communities are made of these individual trajectories of people and how their sort of personal histories intersect, intersect to create the shared values that the community is known for. So I usually start by asking, so how did it all start for you? Which is a very broad question, of course, and the answers are as diverse as you can imagine. Some people might talk about their childhood and how they started programming in basic Others will focus on college. Some people just jump straight into their first jobs as a Ruby dev, and that's absolutely fine as well. From then on, topics will emerge and this conversation can start. Usually, I often feel that around 25, 30 minutes into the chat is when the the sort of main topic will settle and we'll spend the most time talking about that, which can be anything related to the community or that person's own life story. At the end, I always leave room for the person to ask me any questions about the research and uh, or about my own personal history as well. I think that's just only fair. So you mentioned you're about halfway through. Does this mean you have all the interviews that you need or do you need to listen to those interviews and try to find any holes that you might have? Let's say we divide a sort of research process in three steps, one of data collection, then data analysis, and then sort of writing up about that. I am now moving into the data analysis. So I've done a lot of the interviews. I've listened to quite a few of them. So the idea is to kind of listen to all of them and start sort of building this picture of what the Ruby community is, according to these guys. Then I can sort of go into further interviews that I will do in the future and I still need to do to kind of exactly fill in the gaps or explore things that have become important. Because research, especially anthropology research, is always an open-ended sort of enterprise. So the questions and the research questions, they change as you go, right? Because you get more people, more input, and then that takes you further into 
well, places you didn't think you, you would go into. On a personal note, I know this took me a long time, but have you gotten used to listening to your own voice? No, it is pretty strange. No, not yet. You will eventually, but it definitely is strange. So as you're in this data analysis part of the project, what themes about the community were immediately corroborated by the interviews? Are there certain things like kindness or weirdness that immediately became apparent? Yeah, there was one hunch that I had before I started, which was, I think, corroborated by a few interviews, which is the people who didn't have English or who don't have English as their first language might have some very interesting things to say about programming languages or the programming world. Like as most people know, like most programming languages are based on the syntax of the English language, right? And they use English keywords. But that goes to the point where a lot of people think that programming languages that are not based in English don't even exist, but they do. So yeah, anyways, I was chatting with one developer right at the beginning of the project and their main language is Ukrainian and Russian. And he was telling me that there's a programming language called 1C, which is huge in Russia and it's written in Russian. And now what this dev told me was that whenever he worked with that language, he was really embarrassed by it. Like it didn't feel like a serious language. It felt like a toy language. Whereas whenever he worked with Ruby, which of course is written in English, it felt like a professional language. And I think that's just fascinating. Like who would have thought that embarrassment is a feeling that people might have in relation to a programming language? How is it that the kind of computer does that in a sense? On the flip side, what would native English speakers think if they tried to write code in their second or third languages? Uh, I don't know. That's still an open question, I guess, but I think that's all just uh, fascinating. That is fascinating. Can you share something surprising that you learned about the Ruby community? I think two things stand out. One is the idea of weirdness and how a lot of people have been attracted to Ruby because it allows you to build things in a fun, relaxed, or even silly way. Like if you think about people like Why the Lucky Stiff and the influence he's had in shaping the community in its early days, that's kind of what I'm getting at when I talk about weirdness. Like some people told me that goes back to the days of small talk and those mis misfits of working at the Xerox Park. And it's interesting to see how that has changed over the years as well. I think personally, this is incredible for me because one of the very first programs I wrote was a random sentence generator, which is completely useless, of course, but it's quite funny sometimes. And it was I think very surprising to hear from a lot of developers, that aspect was what attracted them to the Ruby community in the first place. The second thing that I'd say that was surprising was how important the community of developers based in Japan is to the maintenance and development of the language. Like most programmers, I knew Ruby had been created by Matt and that he's still like totally involved in development. But I didn't know, for instance, that a Japanese regional government like sponsors the development of the language and that it is kind of considered a national programming language in Japan. I didn't know that the city where Mats is from, Matsue, is called Ruby City because of the language. That's fascinating, right? I was also surprised to find out that Ruby is used for many more things other than Rails in Japan. And that creates to me like an interesting tension, if you want, 
that between how Ruby is used in Japan and around the rest of the world. I think that's really interesting too. Some developers have told me that they feel that they think that things are a bit too centralized in Japan and that it's difficult to access and to know how the language will change and what's the thinking behind certain features. I think this is all fascinating to me because it shows that the community is not a monolith, excuse me, the pun, but it has a lot of different and sort of sometimes conflicting aspects to it. And that's good. That's interesting. It's good because it feels more true so to speak, then the idea that, oh, oh, everyone here is great and that there's no conflict. And obviously there's always some conflict, and I mean like conflict and tension in a very positive way. But I mean, there's always some sort of disagreement or tension in every community. And that's, that's what makes us human, I guess. I totally agree. I had no idea about Ruby City, so I am already learning <laughs> from this. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Scout APM. Scout APM is leading edge application performance monitoring that is designed to help Rails developers quickly find and fix performance issues. All this without having to deal with the headache or overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. With developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, you can quickly pinpoint and resolve performance issues. These include N plus one queries, slow database queries, memory bloat, and more. Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails let you rest easy knowing that Scout's on watch and resolving performance issues before your customers ever see them. Scout has also launched its new error monitoring feature add-on for Ruby applications. Now you can connect your error reporting and application monitoring data on one platform. See for yourself why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend and try their error monitoring and APM free for 14 days, no credit card needed. And as an added bonus for Ruby on Rails listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash Ruby on Rails. I am curious, you know, did you have any interviews where the concept of Ruby and Rails were conflated and you needed to separate them out? Yes, I think that's a really interesting, other interesting aspect too. Obviously, the Ruby community wouldn't be what it is because of Rails. And it's hard to find people who only work with Ruby. But I think that's something that quite often emerges in conversations, especially when you, for example, one thing that I really like to talk about is about magic. And because it's there and sort of programming in very various different ways and appears in different moments, even going back to Unix magic and all, all of those things. And whenever that topic comes up, the developers I talk to usually try to emphasize how a lot of the impression of magic and the feeling of magic comes sometimes from not understanding the boundaries between Ruby and Rails and thinking that things that belong to Ruby actually are actually things that were implemented in Rails and how it is important, I guess, to know where the boundary is. I think it's having the experience of building web apps or building other programs without Rails that kind of starts giving you a more idea of all the things that Rails does for you that, that everyone knows in a sense, but that sometimes you don't know exactly how to point out where those differences are. And I think, again, just that the idea of magic is a good way of exploring that because magic is such a, I don't know, some people hate it and hate to describe things as magic, which is interesting. That just makes the conversation even go further, I guess. I completely agree. So as you wrap up the project, will you submit your findings anywhere? Yeah, in different ways. 
I think I mentioned before that I usually leave around 10, 15 minutes at the end of each interview for participants to ask me any questions that they might have about the research. And it was interesting because in one of these interviews, a developer asked me how I would publish my findings. And when I said that my idea was, or my little dream was to write a book at the end of it, he said that I shouldn't wait and that I should start posting or publishing things right away. And that's uh, what I did. So for the past three months or so, I've been writing short articles and uh, posting them on the project's website, which is just code-ends.xyz. I've written about, for example, feeling embarrassed by language, like I mentioned before, about Ruby and magic, and also about why, uh, why the luck is stiff. I think the next few posts will be about symbol to proc, and I'm writing a profile that focuses on the life story of one specific developer. So that's a way in which I can make it accessible from now, even as I'm doing it, some of the things that I been finding that I think are relevant to the community and getting, obviously getting some feedback. Other than that, I will send papers to anthropology journals, which might or may not be very accessible. But like I said, my dream is to write a book at the end of it and a book that is not filled with anthropology jargon so that everyone in the community can enjoy it, hopefully. Do you think you'll speak at conferences as well around the work that you found? Yeah, I think so. That is something I've been thinking about more and more. I've been to a few, obviously, because of the pandemic, there's been mostly everything has been mostly online, the conferences, and it's been good. I mean, there's definitely, from what I see, there's definitely an openness in the Ruby conference world for talks that are not necessarily that technical, in a sense. So there's always room for non-technical talks, which this one will be. And I think, yeah, I think I'll try that. I think I'll try it. Well, we certainly want to invite you back onto the podcast once the project is completed as well. Yeah, that would be my pleasure. So can listeners do anything to support your work currently? So they can go to code-ents.xyz and read the things I've been writing. I'd be really keen on hearing any feedback on that. Like I said, I want to make this research as much of a dialogue as possible. So feedback is crucial to me. More importantly, they can email me if they want to be interviewed for the project, if they feel that they want to talk about their story as uh, Ruby developers. That would be amazing. It doesn't matter how long you've been in the community. It doesn't matter if you know any juicy details of some kerfuffle that happened 10 years ago. That would be great. That would be great, actually. But you don't have to. Like I said, it's important to get different perspectives. I've even interviewed people who are not Ruby developers, like Kotlin Swift developers and things like that, just to get different perspectives. So reading the posts on Codance and writing some feedback, that'd be great. And also emailing to be interviewed for the project. Those, I think, would be the best ways to support the, the research. Fantastic. We'll link all of that up in the show notes. So a question that I always ask you, and this might be one of the most educated answers we've ever gotten, are what are your thoughts on the future of the Ruby and Ruby on Rails communities? That is a really hard one since I haven't, I guess I haven't been part of the community for that long, but I'm going to guess one thing, which is that the Ruby ecosystem and the community will become more and more diverse. Everyone knows that the Ruby community wouldn't be what it is without Rails, but there are interesting 
sort of alternatives to Rails that have grown and will keep growing. It seems to me a lot of the work that's been done outside of Rails has also been sort of creeping into the language as well. And maybe I think Ruby might even venture out of web development and start becoming a bit more prominent in other environments. So if, if changes in terms of the speed of language and things that have been the focus recently. So if you think about users for machine learning, for example, there are interesting libraries out there already written in Ruby for that. It's just a case of getting the machine learning community to use that, those libraries. I think that that'd be a bit harder, but maybe that's another environment that Ruby is, could explore. It seems to me that participation of people from diverse backgrounds will increase as well as in not just in conferences, but also in creating more content for the Ruby community and sort of exploring the, where they come from, the different communities in the world that can contribute to the Ruby community as a whole. So aside from the project website, is there other ways that listeners can follow you? Yes, they can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Anthro Language. And yeah, that's pretty much it. Twitter is the only social media that I do. And yes, there's the website, the project website and Twitter. That is a really fantastic Twitter handle for you. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Well, Gabe, thank you so much for coming onto the show today. You know, it was a pleasure being interviewed for the project. And I really wanted to make sure that listeners found out about it, even though you're only halfway through. I'm eager to see the results. I think you're doing really important work. And it's just really great to see someone taking a look at the Ruby community in a different way. So thank you for your work. No, thank you. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for being this was my first participation and in podcasts. I mean, thanks for participating in, in the project as well. And I hope people are interested and then they can reach out to me at any point. And I'll be happy to have a chat with them about Ruby. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.